invite you to open your Bible with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3 as we continue our series on life together, working our way through Paul's pastoral letter to his young apprentice. The Apostle Paul, an older seasoned pastor, is writing to a younger pastor named Timothy, who he refers to as his true son in the faith, and is writing to provide encouragement to him as well as counsel to him on for behalf of the church. Timothy, I know that you are young and maybe a bit shy. This is your very first church. You're inexperienced, so I want to help you and to guide you. And you would do well for yourself and the congregation if you would follow this spiritual strategy for shepherding the church. And he provides, Timothy, as we've gone through these first three chapters, provides him some keys for spiritual health. Do you remember what they were? And by the way, let me just add, when I, when I talk about the church or we refer to the church, we're not referring to just something kind of objective, just kind of out there, the church. When we're talking about the church, we're talking about you and me, right? So let's personalize this. Five keys for spiritual health for us as a church. First, devote yourself to doctrine. We've looked at that. Determine to implement church discipline. That means that I and you as individual believers, I want to be connected to other people where I'm accountable spiritually to them. As a man, um, brother, I want to be connected to other men, other brothers in this church where they could say some things to me and hold me accountable to give me some feedback, to give me some input. That's important for spiritual health. And then dedicate yourself to prayer, praying, and direct then forth men and women in the church to follow God's plan for spiritual alignment. We looked at this, headship, spiritual leadership, submission, all of those things. And then last Sunday, make sure the clear, the church is clear then on spiritual leadership, spiritual leadership. And chapter three, if you have your Bible there, we're going to finish this third chapter. But I just want to go back. There are two church offices as we think about spiritual leadership. And I addressed this last Sunday morning. If you see in the first verse of chapter three is the office of elder. And so Timothy is told to appoint elders in the church as the leaders, the overseers, the pastors, and the church is to recognize them, to know who they are, and they are to follow these elders. And then in verses 1 through 8, Paul tells Timothy, before appointing these men to this role, make sure that you find, this is what you're looking for, men who have good spiritual character foundational, who are blameless, above reproach, beyond repute, just a good name, good reputation, good character. And then he goes on in the next several verses and provides some additional character qualities that you're to look for. And the only spiritual gift that's given for these elders is that they are apt to teach. So find men that have a good name, good reputation, well thought of by the congregation, Find some men that have good spiritual character and find brothers who are apt to teach, which means three things. They know the word, they know their Bibles, 
Second, they're able to communicate it. And third, they know how to apply it in leading the church. And so these elders, leaders, function with spiritual authority. Their authority comes from the scriptures as they lead God's people. Then second, the office that we see starting at verse 8. You see that in your Bible? The Bible prescribes the second office, which is that of a deacon. The diaconate simply means those who serve and those who minister. Again, there is no job description in the New Testament for a deacon. There is for an elder, this pastor overseer, but not for a deacon. Deacons are just those who roll up their sleeves with a desire to work. With a desire to work, to do whatever is needed to help the body of Christ to be healthy. And as we mentioned this last Sunday, that desire to do that is produced within them by the Holy Spirit. The only way an elder or a deacon is going to be effective and really to do what God wants them to do is they have to have a heart, they have to have a desire to serve, which again is produced by the Holy Spirit. Hillcrest, we are blessed currently as a congregation. Do you know how many deacons we have here? We have 18 men deacons and their wives functioning, hopefully as a team. I think too often we've just said things to the men, but they function as a team uh, to meet needs in the church. And thankfully, the deacons and wives are not like, are not like other deacon ministries and far too many of our Baptist churches. And they kind of describes a board. And I've never thought that the deacons are to be a board. They're a body. And in too many other churches, the deacons are a board who, let me describe what you might find. Brothers who sit together, sometimes actually in the front of the church or sometimes in the very back of the church to, to oversee everything. And this deacon board sometimes are, are those who oversee the church finances. They think that's their job. And sometimes they think it's their job to oversee the pastor and then decide if he comes or goes. Literally, it's up to them and sometimes up to their wives whether he stays or he's out the door. In the first church that Mindy and I went to, we had six deacons. And for the most part, I got along with those brothers pretty well. But after my first year at that church, I was surprised by something. During the end of the very first year, there was a business meeting. And I don't like business meetings, like member meetings. I don't like business meetings. And I, along at the end of that meeting, completely unknown to us, we were asked to step outside of the business meeting while they had an annual call. You ever heard of that? An annual call. I thought, what is this? And so... Every year, which no one told us about on the front end, the deacons would lead the the end of the year business meeting and they would make, and many and I would step out and then they would make either supportive comments or negative comments about my performance and my proficiency and then the entire church would check yes or no on secret ballots and the ballots were collected and tabulated, then my wife and I were asked to come back into the business meeting and were informed of the results. And what I was informed of was 
either I was still the pastor for another year or my services were no longer needed. I have no idea where such an unbiblical practice came from, no idea how that kind of mindset developed or who came up with that, but I submitted to it every year the whole time I was there. And to be honest, occasionally, I kind of hoped the negative votes would be higher than the <laughs> positive ones. But that's not what the Bible prescribes, amen? That's not the role of deacons. Instead, the deacons and their wives are servants. They, have, they, they love the Lord Jesus and they love his church and they want to they do something with their life that affects the kingdom and so they have a desire to serve. And in this church, they do things like open and close the building, prepare the Lord's Supper, Make sure it's served with order and reverence. Helping persons with their baptisms. Ministering to widows and single moms. Helping to encourage new members, especially to help folks get connected in Sunday school. Making hospital visits if necessary and checking on folks in nursing homes and helping with special ministry events and just hanging around to serve. Some of them actually oversee some ministry areas, kind of looks like what you see in Acts 6. And they just do about anything else that needs to be done in the church. They're servants. They're table waiters. They're shock absorbers and mufflers in the church, keeping the ride of the church smooth and quiet. The main idea from Acts chapter 6 is these brothers and their wives serve to foster unity in the church. Then notice in chapter 3, verses 8 through, verses 8 through 13, describes what to look for. And again, they're to be blameless. They're to have a good name, a good reputation. And then it lists all these character qualities that they're to have, very similar to the elders. And since you and I are pretty much familiar with the deacon ministry, I want you to go with me down to verse 14. And this is what I want to address in the remaining moments that we have together. I want to speak on what Paul addresses here. Just He kind of backs up and takes a bigger picture of the church, which is all of us as followers of the Lord Jesus bound together in Christ. By identity, we are his bride, his people, his sons and daughters. He is our heavenly good father. And in all of that, the church is rooted in the mystery of godliness. Read with me chapter 3, starting at verse 14, then we'll pray together. This is the theme of this entire letter. Timothy, these things I write to you though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And here he describes what the mystery of godliness is. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, 
seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Let's pray. God, our Father, in these few moments, we ask you to speak to us through your Spirit. Open our minds to see and comprehend God, what you want us to know. And Father, we pray that through this that we would be renewed and revived as sons and daughters of the King. So give us ears to hear your spirit in these moments and I pray that our wills would be sensitive and tender to be in obedience to whatever you may say to us. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I believe that one of the challenges in our culture, even in the Bible Belt, is that we're losing clarity on some biblical basics. First, I think we're losing clarity more and more as a culture of what it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian is not just someone who goes to church. Losing clarity on that and closely related, I think we're losing clarity on what it means to be the church, what it means to be a member of the body of Christ, what it means to belong to the family of God. If you were sitting with someone at a table, maybe your kitchen table or in a coffee shop somewhere and you had a cup of coffee and you're just sitting and having a discussion, and you got into a discussion with the person sitting across from you, just very relaxed, very informally, maybe even at work, on a break or during your lunch hour, and the subject of the gospel somehow got brought up, and, and the person were to ask you, what does it mean? How would you explain to them what it is to be a Christian? How might you might respond to that question, that discussion? Let me take a stab at it with you. A Christian is a person, a man or a woman, can be young, old alike, who knows that they are a sinner. How do they know they're a sinner? The Holy Spirit produces a deep awareness and conviction that I'm a sinner, I am in a bad position with a holy God, with my creator. I'm condemned before God in my sins, dead spiritually in my trespasses. They may not understand this, but Ephesians says that they actually, in our lost condition, we are actually enemies of God with strife and enmity between us and God. And there's an awareness it begins to settle in that the consequences or the wages of my sin is death. I deserve death. I deserve eternal separation from God. My sinfulness deserves punishment. Therefore, a spiritual crisis emerges in the mind and the heart of that person as the Holy Spirit begins to press down and press in upon that person 
And the Holy Spirit speaks and convicts and draws that person to the realization that I'm spiritually bankrupt before God. And the Holy Spirit reveals Jesus, convicts of sin, but also of righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, that this is who Jesus is, the Son of God, and this is what he has done for us at the cross. And therefore, because of God's grace, I say, Lord, forgive me of my sins. I surrender. Listen, I yield and I surrender my life to you. Saved by grace through faith. It's completely a gift of God. And through prayer, asking God to save me, to give me new life, and to forgive me my sins. And God is able and just to save us and forgive us. Why? Because of Jesus paying the debt for our sins on the cross. And part of that salvation then includes the Holy Spirit from that moment indwelling us, sealing us, never leaving us, never forsaking us, and the Holy Spirit changing us. Paul described it where the grace of Christ compels me or constrains me to live a new life in Christ Jesus where all old things are past and all things become new. As he said to the Corinthians that we are no longer our own for we've been bought with a price. And we settle the fact from this point forward and the rest of my life, I belong to Christ. I don't belong to myself. My identity, my life is in Christ. That's kind of a brief description of what it means to be a Christian. And I want to say to you, I'm deeply concerned and burdened over what appears to be on too many church roles. Either many on those roles are not truly saved, they're not truly converted, or they're standing in need of spiritual revival. They need to repent of some sin and experience a restored love and passion and passion for the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, why do, why do you say that? Why, why do you have that concern? Well, I have that concern because there is no visible devotion and desire as described in Romans 12 on the part of many believers to connect with other Christians, to serve with other Christians, and no passion to make Jesus known. That's why. The reality is there are too many living life like there is no eternity. Like this life is all that there is with no sense of what's to come and no sense of the spiritual destiny of lost people all around them. No real desire to really work and serve in the church to make it stronger, to bless other people. And so we become a blurry vision bunch, not clear on what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and not clear on what it means to belong to a church. In our text in verse 14, Paul reminds Timothy, Timothy, I'm writing this letter, all of this instruction to you, and it's my hope. It's my desire that before too much longer, I'll be able to come in to you. And so, Timothy, be encouraged. I haven't forgotten you, and I'm coming. I want to see you. I want to be with you and see how you're doing. It's kind of like the way maybe a dad would 
feel towards one of his sons or son who had moved away and hadn't seen him in a long time. I'd like to be with you again. I'd like to share with you concerning the things of God to see how your spiritual growth is coming along and how your church is progressing. Verse 15, but if for some reason, son Timothy, I'm delayed, I hope that this letter that I'm writing to you out of a pastor's, a father's heart, I hope this letter would help you to understand it and be more clear on the significance of the church, the significance of what you're giving your life to, and I hope it would help you to understand more and more about the mystery of godliness, the supremacy of Jesus. So Chris, I invite you to consider with me from verse 15 the significance of the church, the significance of who you are and who we are. Matthew 16, Jesus said, I will build my church, my people. He founded the church. Ephesians 5, Jesus died for you. He died for me. He died for the church. In Acts 9, he identifies with the church. In John 3, Jesus calls the church his bride in Ephesians 5 and 1 Corinthians 12. He calls you and I his body. This text elevates the value that God places on you and me individually, but the value that God places upon his bride, the church. And in these verses, there's three descriptions that Paul gives to Timothy describing the church. He says, first, we are God's house, his household. We're we're God's family. We're God's kids. He loves us, cares about us. Listen, God loves you and cares more about you and me than we do ourselves. There was a time when the Davis household consisted of a mom and a dad and three daughters and one son all under the same roof. We lived together and there was some organization in that household, a few rules, some guidelines. We ate at certain times. There were rules at the dinner table. We spoke to respect with respect to each other and We all tried to be considerate of one another and kind and helpful. It wasn't always easy. And there was some alignment in the home. Likewise, Hillcrest, we, as God's household, we are his church. And the point, we are to operate under his direction and under his control. This letter should drive us as Christians to come before God and ask, how do you want me to behave? God, as your church, how do you want me to act? How do you want me to conduct myself? Let me ask you a question. Would you do that today? Would you prayerfully ask God if there were some things, some areas in your life that need to change, would you ask God to show you what they are? Why? Because we're his family. We're his household. We're to operate under his rules. We are God's dwelling place. We are the place where Christ's 
presence dwells. Verse 15 says, we are the church of the living God. Any first century Jew, when they heard that we are the church of the living God, would have understood that phrase perhaps associating it back to Genesis chapter 28. Jacob, one of the young men described there, and he's on a journey facing a crisis. You remember he had deceived his brother Esau, and he had, because of that crisis, he had been forced to leave home. And so he was on a journey facing a crisis, and he comes to a place called Bethel, which means the house of God. And he has an encounter with God. Do you remember the story? He goes to sleep that night. He puts a rock, a stone under his head as a pillow, and he has a dream. And in Jacob's dream, he sees a stairway, a ladder that connects where he is to heaven and to God. And at the end of the dream, Jacob cries out and says, surely the Lord is in this place. What an awesome place this is. This is none other than the house of God. God said something very similar when he speaks to Moses, providing instructions to him to build a tabernacle. He says to Moses, make me a sanctuary so I may dwell among you. Kind of the same thing that God says to Solomon when he builds the temple. So the point is in God chose to dwell in a specific place to make his presence and glory known. And in the New Testament, a change occurs. God no longer dwells in a city or a tabernacle, a temple, or even in a building. Rather, our God, through the Holy Spirit, dwells in his people. No longer with his people as he was in the Old Testament, but he actually indwells us through the Holy Spirit. Paul said we are his dwelling place, the dwelling place of God. We are his temple being built up together for his dwelling in us by his spirit. That's the lesson. We are God's household. We are the place where he dwells. And so gathering together, we come together as an expression of God's actual presence, his household, his dwelling place. And third, we're guardians of his word. Look at verse 15. We are the pillars and ground of the truth. Can you imagine? There's a few homes probably throughout the area of New Albany and surrounding areas where you might find a very lavish home that has on the front porch, in the front of the house, some magnificent columns, maybe some marble pillars. Those, that image of those columns or pillars best describes how we as God's people are to hold up and how to support his word. We're guardians of the truth in two, two ways. We're his household, we are his dwelling place, we are the guardians, the pillars of his word, we're to hold it up in two ways. We're to preserve the word, to hold it, to know the scriptures, to study it, right? 2 Timothy 3.16, study to show yourself approved, a workman who needs not to be ashamed before God, but one who rightly divides the word of truth, and we're to hold on to it, study it, know it, pass it on, to live it, defend it, talk about it, share it whenever we can. We are to preserve it and we're to proclaim it. 
or to share it with other people, to lift it high, to talk about it, to value it more than opinions and theories, and to talk, to be more passionate about talking about God's word with other people even than about Ole Miss baseball or even more about the weather. Let me ask you last time. In your mind, when is the last time you sat with someone else and you just talked about the scriptures? Some things that God was revealing to you. Some things that you were learning and understanding. Hillcrest, let's take every opportunity to teach the word starting in our own homes, with ourselves, with our own kids, our grandkids, then collectively as we come together to make the teaching ministry stronger of this church and nursery and preschool and children's ministries and student areas and with adults. And let's learn to invite other people to get into Bible studies with us. Bible studies, God will speak through his word and will begin to reveal himself to people and he'll begin to make claims Begin to draw and work in people's lives through the word. Sunday mornings, Wednesdays, let's never miss opportunities to sow the word. Let me, let me say this to you also in love. There's nothing wrong with us gathering together sometimes just to have fun and fellowship, but it seems to me like it's a wasted opportunity if we gather with our kids or our students and we just gather for fun and we never have opportunity. We're not taking the opportunity to teach the word. We're missing opportunities. I know it doesn't sound cool. Probably doesn't sound too hip to some of you. But Sunday morning, Sunday school classes are still a viable means for delivering the word of God and connecting us in fellowship with each other. And I want to, I just want to encourage all of you to attend Sunday school to find a place where you can connect with other people, to find a class where you fit, where you can contribute and make a difference. You say, well, I've tried and I just don't like that class. Well, find another class. Or form, come to, to me or Pastor Trina and say, I want to start a new class. I, I, just, I just don't feel like that class. I mean, just find some place to connect with other believers. Hillcrest, God is here. He's dwelling here with us. We are his people, guardians of his word. When's the last time you've been to a church when it seemed pretty dead? Has it been a while? <laughs> or the lampstand seems like it's been removed and no one there knows it? Don't you long with me that when you and I enter the, come together as God's people or somebody enters this worship place with us don't you long for people to sense God's presence or his dwelling place and people can come and say man and just walk through the door and just sense God's presence among those people amen look at verses 16 and 17 I want you to consider with me as we close the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ Describe one of the great passages in the New Testament, Colossians 1, the fullness, the supremacy, the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Paul also describes it, just kind of encouraging Timothy, reminding him of the Lord Jesus. Another way of describing the supremacy of Christ could be the mystery of godliness. The mystery of godliness. Godliness is a recurring word that Paul uses in this letter nine times. 
And godliness describes a Christian who is someone, a man or woman, young person, who is consciously aware of God, wakes up in the morning, and one of their first thoughts is God, his presence, what he might be leading, what he might send. Their, their mind is centered on Christ, and therefore this godliness, this consciousness, this mindset affects everything that happens throughout the day. Godliness, consciousness. Some of you, I know, you, you think about the Lord throughout the day, don't you? You're aware of his presence. You think about, you talk to him. You listen to him throughout the day. You think about his word. That's foundational for living a godly life. Aware of his presence, that means it affects my words and my actions and my attitude and my lifestyle. Mind, body, and spirit. My That's what Paul says. I write these things to you so that you might know how to conduct yourself. Godliness, aware of Christ. I pulled out yesterday, I'll give you an example of this, and I got on the road, came down Central Avenue and Jumped on 22 to run up to McAllister's and uh, got off there and got out the light and somebody just pulled right out in front of me and I thought, well, didn't sit too well with me and, and then uh, pulled out and someone else came around the corner, just got right up on my, started to say rear end, tail end, you know, and it's like, what, what in the world? And then, Parked my car at McAllister's, started walking across the parking lot. Some idiot in a big pickup truck about ran me over. I was like, dude, what's your problem? You know? And, and you, you know what, right? That kind of stuff happens all the time. And I, I would never, might think it, I would never flip somebody off, gesture them. Why? Because of my awareness of my witness and my testimony, I've always thought I'd, if I did something like that and it was on my way to church and pull in the church, I'll probably that person, maybe that I did something like that, dude, follow in and get there at church and we go and say, well, that's the pastor. He just, just did this to me, you know, <laughs> right? Conduct. Conduct. The Lord Jesus Christ dwells within you. He dwells within me. Our conduct, our attitude, our actions, our words matter. I don't, I don't, and I'll fail. You and I will fail, but I don't intentionally want to do anything that would cause someone to think less of the Lord Jesus Christ Amen. in business dealings, financial transactions. Dealing with a situation a year or so ago doing some drywall work. I think some guy really took advantage of me. And he did take advantage of me. And I had a decision to make. Do I pay him the 800 extra dollars and protect my testimony? Do I wrangle and argue with him? And then I told him, you know what? It's better that I just pay him the money. Some of you are not like that. 
My testimony, your testimony matters. It reflects on Jesus Christ. And listen, your testimony, my testimony, our conduct reflects on our church family. Previous pastor, there was a visitor family that came in one Sunday morning. I got into a conversation and this man was in a leadership position at General Electric Appliance Park there in Louisville. And I welcomed him to the church and I found out later they didn't come back to the church because there was another man in our church who also worked there and he had a completely different lifestyle in the workplace than he did in the church and that family never wanted to come back to our church. Conduct matters. If I was a single person, how I related to another single woman, perhaps another single female in this church, I I would want to make sure that morally, spiritually, I didn't do some things that I didn't need to do because that's my sister in Christ. Freedom, she wasn't in this church. My my spiritual conduct, my attitude, my actions, my words. That's what Paul saying, it matters, it matters. How we represent Jesus and how we represent his church. How many of you enjoy a good mystery? Perhaps some of you know about some mystery programs, Criminal Minds, and one of my favorites, Law and I like the old Law and Orders where Lenny Briscoe is in those movies, and Mindy's favorites are Columbo and Matlock and 48 Hours and NCIS. You know, they're, they're mysteries. What is a mystery? Well, a mystery can be something that's difficult or impossible to understand, or it can be a head scratcher, a conundrum, a puzzle. In a mystery novel or in a movie, you have to pay attention to information along the way until the very end when the mystery is revealed. Paul is describing here the mystery of godliness, and it's not something that's unsolved. This mystery that he's describing here is not impossible to figure out. Rather, it refers to a truth, something that at one time was hidden that others maybe looked forward to or longed to, but now this truth has been revealed. The mystery has opened up. It's the mystery of godliness. Do you know what Paul is describing there in verse 16, this mystery of godliness? He's describing the supremacy of Jesus. Would you look at these with me? What does he say? Jesus was what? Manifested in the flesh? God revealed himself in human form, in flesh, justified in the Spirit, affirmed by the Holy Spirit. Remember at his baptism, the Spirit spoke, Spirit came upon him, the Spirit affirmed him through signs and wonders and miracles and even in the resurrection. He was seen by angels. Angels sang at the birth of Jesus Angels announced his resurrection. Angels witnessed his ascension. Preached among the Gentiles across the earth to all nations. I pray that we as a church, all of us can do more to serve, to serve the vulnerable. It's not optional. 
when you think about discipleship, serving those who are in need in New Albany, we have all kinds of opportunities and doors available to us to minister to the poor, to the vulnerable, to those who are hurting. Listen, some of us are, feel inconvenienced by people. Instead of looking for opportunities to serve and certainly to be used by God to advance the gospel in Portugal and India. He says, Jesus was believed on in the world. That's happening today. People more and more are being saved, coming to faith among the nations. Some of you may disagree with this, but I greatly appreciate this past week when the Southern Baptist Convention gathered in Anaheim, California, and Rick Warren there this week stopped in and he encouraged us as a convention to stop fighting over secondary issues, to refrain from dividing each other over differences in our interpretations of some passages of Scripture, which I agree with. Some of them are second-tier issues. Some of you may have saw him and he said instead, Southern Baptists, stay united in love and stay united in the gospel. We'll stay together, fulfill the great commission and to advance the gospel to all nations instead of asking everybody to agree with every jot and tittle that we, the way we interpret scripture. It's sad to me. You see, this message this morning is for you and it's for me. It's to see Jesus and to recognize, again, to remember who he is and that he lives within us. Paul is saying, God, Jesus reveals God, all godliness is in him. Paul calls to this Ephesian church to conduct themselves properly. And it's not just for the sake of good conduct, but it's to honor Jesus and to build up the body of Christ. Some of you this morning are going through some tough stuff in your life. You're going through some tests and some hardships individually and as a family. You need to be reminded today that whatever it is that you're going through, Jesus lives in you. He is a faithful provider. He is a healer. Greater is he than that is in you, that he that is in this world, his word is life, his presence is peace. He is a source of help, hope, and strength. And he's overcome, conquered sin and death, and he reigns. And you and I, therefore, have nothing to fear. Challenge is to keep trust in him, amen, and to walk by faith and to abide in his word. He'll crest. I love the Lord Jesus. I'm not ashamed to say it. In fact, I wish everyone, would like for everyone to know that I'm a follower of Christ, that he's supreme. And I love the church. I love God's people. And God's spirit has produced a gift within me, a pastoral gift, a shepherd and care for my church family. I'm trying to do that by his grace. And I don't want to do anything, I don't do it, not anything that will cause another person to think less of Jesus and to think less of Hillcrest Baptist Church. And if I mess up and sin and say and do something that I shouldn't do, let me say this to you, it is never too late to go back. 
something that happened last year, a couple years ago, go back to that person and say, you know what, this has bothered me, it's been on my heart, and I, I need you to forgive me. Just as God has forgiven me in Christ Jesus, why, to keep our conduct and our the reputation of his church and the Lord right, for all of our conduct to exalt Christ, for him to increase, for us to decrease, to make his bride look good to others. What about you this morning? Is Jesus supreme in your life? Truly supreme? Can other people see the fullness of Christ in you through your words, through your actions, through your sensitivity, through your love? Can they see Christ in you? And if not, let me ask you, why not? Why not? What is the Holy Spirit calling you to do? What changes does God want you to make? And does your passion for the Lord Jesus Christ find expression in your devotion to his church? Does your conduct value that you demonstrate the body of Christ? Does your devotion to Jesus demand your allegiance to his people? If not, why not? Why changes might the Holy Spirit be calling you to make today? We've been singing and praying for renewal, for revival. Let it start with you. Let it start with me. That's how renewal, that's how spiritual renewal occurs in our lives, obedience, and it spreads. Let's pray together.